beautiful light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker and I'm excited to have a guest, Peter Panagor, here today and we're going to talk about near-death experiences and you should definitely check out his book, Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death is Just the Beginning. Wonderful book. So I would like to begin this interview a little bit differently and not jump into near-death experiences, but talk about some of the markers of profound near-death experiences because both Peter and I have had long, profound, intense near-death experiences, and those elements are worthy of discussing. And one of the first elements of a near-death experience that, you know, begins is this disassociation with the physical, and that can have lifelong effects because just that mere stepping aside from the physical and seeing the body and then beginning to see this reality outside of form has implications. And then the next part of the near-death experience is sort of this beginning to be aware of naturalistic environments. So this could be some type of environment that is different from this environment. So would you jump in and talk about disassociation first and then that environment outside of form? Because you have such a great language for this. That's something I admire. So I'd like you to jump in. Well, thank you. Good to see you. Um, I didn't see my body when I died. I didn't have a sense of the biological form was where I lived until I'd already been plucked out by the one I named the Angel of Death, who um, took me against my will. And when I first became aware that I was no longer biology was when I was in the great darkness, which is illuminated, and I was an orb of consciousness, a, a being without body, but with a much more powerful mind, uh, almost not infinitely so, but exponentially so. I was capable of processing everything that I saw around me, and I understood uh, that I was no longer where I had been, and where I was was It was, the, it was the most peaceful, beautiful, loving place I could ever imagine. And that was before I met the divine. Yes, yeah, so that immediate peace is something that I also felt too. That beginning to be aware of the surroundings outside of form happens pretty immediately. So I did see my body. So mm -hmm. I was in different circumstances, but I saw my form on the operating table. I saw how bloody it was and I saw angels who were there to interact with my body and my spirit body, but you were immediately taken to a place beyond this this realm. And that is kind of the supernatural phase, I guess, of the near-death experience, how a lot of uh, researchers talk about it, you know, so you were thrown into the supernatural. And what was that like for you, just being thrown into that environment? It was... Uh confusing. I, I didn't understand where I was or what had happened to me. I knew that I had been uh, hanging on a cliff. I knew that I had been dying. I didn't understand how I still had consciousness and how a consciousness like mine could exist outside of my form. And w w I was um, bewildered. I was bewildered and befuddled, but not in fear or uh, lost. I was I was self-aware of my location as being completely comfortable with exactly what I was and where I was without any sort of regret. And one of the things that is difficult to explain, and you do a really good job of this, is the no time. So yeah, near-death experiences often have like a passage, like there seems to be markers and one thing is happening after another, but many things were happening at one time for me. You know, I got this sense of God early on in my near-death experience, but it was like this cord that connected me to God as I went through the life review, as I went through this sense of oneness. And I think you had something similar is that, would you describe an awareness of time blending all at one time and this sense of God early on? Not only not only did I have no body, um, there was no space, like uh, height, width, depth, and there was no time. But all time seemed to exist at one time. 
It wasn't like there was a future and a past and a present. All of those things existed simultaneously. And so when I conceptualize it for talking about it, I give it a, a, a form of structure and language, uh, primarily first to think about it, uh, so that I have a, a way to form the understanding in my head. But I know specifically there was no time and there was no space and uh, my sense of self was everlasting almost immediately. Everlasting and created. I knew instantaneously uh, as soon as I heard my name called that had no sound um, or words, um, <laughs> I knew instantaneously that I was everlasting created self and that God was eternal and that I was, I was existing in this place um, as a beloved being totally whole. And my wholeness wasn't just of myself and my consciousness. My wholeness was of the divine itself. It was the, the, it was the, the infilling that happened to me after my life review, which, and during which time I heard, I love you, I love you, I forgive you, I know you, I've always known you, uh, I've never blamed you. My connection was I was supported by the loving divine. I didn't feel like a chord like you did, but I knew that even in the midst of my review, which was painful, um, it was like being in the, the fire of love, as Catherine of Genoa calls it, um, which was really uh, adept, ad, ad, um, uh, accurate to what happened to me. Um, God's presence was so fulfilling, I was the safest I'd ever been. Yeah, I do understand that. The cord happened like as soon as I was out of body, so still in that operating room and beginning uh, to go through things. Right. And then it, it grew. Like as I went through the life review, I felt God was there, almost like a starscape. That's how I describe it, because I was in this black void, and mm. I felt God mm. getting closer. And then as I went into that heavenly landscape, then I saw God and went toward you know, the, the presence of God that was so overwhelming. But it's as if God was far away through the experience and then got closer to me. Did you have this moment where you just were like immediately with God? I was like immediately with God. I, I, had, mm -hmm. I could see uh, m my consciousness was like a singular orb of eyesight. Uh, mm -hmm. 10,000 eyes or a single eye and I could see eternity. I couldn't see the end of eternity. I, it, and even though this was a, a darkness in which there was nothing else, except for this portal, which is a, a, a little bit of an aside here, but there were no stars or anything up there. It was just eternity. And even though it was, it made me very, very small, I was very, very comfortable. And, and, and then when my name was called, it was instantaneous. Suddenly I'm in the presence of the, of the divine who has no form or substance and speaks no language, but was communicating to me directly telepathically and I knew that I was in the presence completely and there was no way that I could not know it was God and I was infilled and and called and burned and suffered and was joyful and and passed through this purgation all at once and um, and even though even though it seems to me like there was an after that part when when I was cleansed it all happened so fast it was as if it happened all at once. Yeah, interesting. I am going to let you tell your near-death experience eventually, but I'm just kind of picking apart these moments in it. And the life review is a common thing that a lot of people experience. And I love how you describe that, you know, that being washed clean of everything. But what I want to get to is, just out of curiosity, is this feeling of oneness that you describe, and I must tell viewers, I have read a lot of your book and talked with you at this point, so I have some knowledge of your story, but this oneness with everyone is an amazing concept. I, I laughed because I felt this oneness with people in Austin as I was over the hospital and I felt, you know, just like I merged with the town. Later, I've had these experiences as an after effect of near-death experiences where I'm walking down the street and then suddenly I just feel like I'm one with everyone and I feel their thoughts and you know it's overwhelming. It's really a strange after effect and then sometimes it's a beautiful after effect. In a different culture, a foreign culture, I had someone just hand me change and then suddenly I was one with everyone and it was this beautiful light-filled experience that was 
it reminded me of that oneness that I experienced during my near-death experience. And then I, I went to see the Hugging Saint. I don't know if you're familiar with her, Alma. I've heard of her, yes. Yes, but after she hugged me, I had a profound experience where I had to go sit down and I just felt as if every person she'd ever hugged was one with me. And I felt like I was mentally flipping through every image of every person that had been hugged by Alma. And so I wondered if that's like a... Mm -hmm. As on the scale of what you experienced, this oneness with everyone, and do you have those after effects like I'm describing? I do have those after effects like you're describing, and I have. One day, I was uh, walking in New York City, and I was you know, had hours to walk, and and I was chanting in my head as I as I walked, and I, I live out in nature where God leaks through most easily, and I don't really feel it that often in cities, but that day, for hours on end. Hmm. The people were nature for me. There was God leaked through every single person. It was overwhelmingly wonderful and beautiful and disorienting too, because I felt like I was, I was walking through a, a movie set sort of, because I was, uh, it was so unreal, and I was smiling at everyone in New York City, <laughs> and they were smiling back at oh, me God. <laughs> all day long, all day long, and I. And I, what I felt on the other side was, was I, I, saw, I saw the oneness of all humanity in the divine, encased in the divine love of all. Uh, every person being beloved, every person always being beloved, eternally, and that all is well, has been well, and will be well. But I also saw that that love w that was inside every single person emanated from the divine. And, and that's what made us all one. It wasn't that the biological bodies that we have were the one part. It's the, it's the love that, was, that enables us to be is our is our unity. And sometimes uh, on earth, that I, I experienced that like you, but when I, what I felt mostly, the most powerful thing I felt, was a, div, a divine oneness. I wasn't the totality of the divine being, not anywhere near it. But for as much as my soul self could contain, I was filled to overflowing hmm. with this oneness of, uh, that was, was a, 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 we separate them out, trust, truth, love, joy, hope, um, beauty, wonderment, awe, knowledge, understanding, wisdom. We make them all separate out here when we talk about them. But my experience of those was as a, as a oneness. Uh, and if I had to pick dominance, I would pick beauty and love. Um, but, uh, but, but there really weren't any dominance. It, it just, the love was so overwhelming, it, it became beautiful. And, that that, and, that's, oh, and that's what I see in human beings now, individually and um, sometimes corporately, is, mm -hmm. is, is that light love uh, that emanates directly from the divine. Well, that's, that's a different question that I might ask you. But yeah, during my near-death experience, I saw that people could either have their lights turned on or they could not. And I saw that as fear. Mm. That fear uh, kind of surrounded sure. them. And light was just purpose and love and all those emotions that you're talking about. But it's also a connection to the divine. So sure. I see that in human beings. Yeah, even if it's not known, and that's the weird thing. They may not realize that they have a connection to the divine, but they do, mm -hmm. and they're just in this state of of uh, doing good in this world. And I saw my purpose was to come back and remind people as a teacher to turn on their lights, you know, to not live in fear, but to live in that light-filled space. And purpose is something that a lot of near-death experiencers talk about after the near-death experience and I know that you had a great sense of purpose and you know went to seminary school and there are many things that drove you in certain directions but what could you just talk about your purpose right after and how that grew over time okay uh, I, immediately upon my return the very next day I felt like I had a lion inside me roaring <laughs> to express the thing that I couldn't even name. I, I, I had no language to even to think about it. I had no concept what had happened to me. But I felt this huge pressure to speak the unspeakable. And hmm. I decided at that point that it was kind of kooky. And so I, wouldn't, I decided not to tell anybody, mostly because I couldn't explain it. 
how was I going to tell people I died? And they'll ask me what happened, and I won't be able to tell them because I have no way of thinking about it. So I, that, that feeling of being continually called, um, the, the, of, of being always known, of always being um, the eye of the divine on me, uh, has began from the very moment of my return and has demanded expression and communication of this light. And so I immediately began, um, well, re-began my meditation practice. I'd already been practicing before I died um, for years, and I continued it after I died, but I used it a little differently. I began to try to dive inside and calm my mind to the place where I could sit inside the divine being that was, uh, I had a window inside myself to look through, and I was trying to clean the window to see. Uh, then I ended in a up in a pantomime class and in the pantomime class my mime teacher was a yogi who uh, taught us about chi and in the very first class this is three or four months later I moved my chi I, I felt it and I moved it call it whatever you want to call it um, energy life chi prana whatever um, and I thought and I felt I thought and I felt that my purpose was to express that thing and that, mm. and, and that, that my secret life goal would be uh, pursuit of historical, mystical, contemplative knowledge in order to mind the books that have been handed down through centuries of use to find tools to open that doorway so that I could learn to get out of the way enough to let it radiate through me so that others could feel it from me in order to have a taste of of the heaven that awaits them short of all of that i chose words as a as a mechanism words in a in a christian culture mm -hmm. uh, i was raised roman catholic and greek orthodox i had had mystical contemplative leanings before this happened uh, and after this happened i decided to stay within my cultural context and become a, a God's secret agent, as it were, a mole for the a mole for the divine, and use the language that exists to try to change the hearts of the seekers, or not change them, but to lead them, point the way, help them find their path. So my whole life has been about communicating this, either through words or through my own spiritual practice, or or through action, and through loving the people I love. Uh, and through daily life, it's it's not really complex. It's it's actually pretty simple. Just love. Yeah, that I often boil everything down to that too. Like, give love, be love, be that channel of love, and as you say, get out of the way for that expression of love. And it makes for the greatest stories, the greatest movies, the greatest moments in life. Really, I mean, when you look at anything that changes us or touches us it truly is love and that is such a great healer too um i do want to talk about one thing before i send you on the path of talking about your near-death experience but near-death experiencers either want to come back for someone or some reason or they're kind of kicked back into their body and you had the experience of wanting to come back and asking to come back and you know the love of your parents and and these obligations it is strange why some of us are forced back and some of us beg to come back. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Because I really don't. All I know is that I didn't have a choice. I would have preferred to have stayed there or have preferred to come back and live my life the way I wanted to live it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's God over. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was just laughed. That was, I really do think God has a sense of humor. There was yeah. some laughter. I was like flicked back into my body. And the last thing I knew is that I was going to live and be a teacher and follow God's orders. Um, do you have any thoughts on why some people beg and why some people are like slammed back into their body I, I, I don't I wish I did <laughs> I what I what I do understand is is that my life was completely changed after I came back the last thing God said to me is you won't live your life and that's exactly what happened it sounds like to you too you're completely not the same person you were before and and now you are uh, God's your boss and you can't ever get away and at least that's how it feels to me uh, it took me a while to accept that but I did. I, I chose to come back. I chose to come back because my parents had lost us. My, my sister had vanished. My mom had a, a 
breakdown that lasted a decade. It was a bad home scene that was full of suffering. And I couldn't take another child from them. And um, I was kind of hanging out there and this portal, this long arcing tunnel portal that was transparent and translucent was just kind of hanging out there. I hadn't gone through this tunnel thing. I was in some other uh, space of non-being in the presence of the one who I couldn't see. And I said, you know, I haven't gone through the tunnel yet. And God said, nope. And I said, well, do I have to go? And God said, no, but indicated God wanted me to stay. And I said, well, can I come back to this divine indwelling and this heaven inside me? And God said, yes. And I said, well, I choose to live my life. And then God said, you won't live your life. And um, I haven't lived my life ever since. I'm, I, I jumped back into my body and, and mostly I've regretted it. And I, it's probably a difference between us. Yeah. I've, I've had regret about coming back. You huh. can't have that because you didn't have the choice. You might, you might be upset. Um, uh, yeah, I miss, I, <laughs> I miss certain things about yeah, being there. <laughs> right, right. Certainly, like as many of us call it home, you know, like I'd never felt as good as I felt mm. in the presence of God. And, mm. you know, I long for that. I can, through Me meditation too. and through different practices, I get close, you know, and there are moments of it, but then we're thrown into daily life. And, you know, there is that. It's not the same, you know. There's not that direct contact, and uh, and it can be a struggle. So yeah, coming back to the body, though, I think maybe I was a little more hedonistic because I had this horrible accident, you know, and I was like learning to use my body again. So just a milkshake was like, oh my god, this is the best thing <laughs> in the world. So there, well, were fun, yeah. <laughs> there were fun things about coming back to form. Um, you talk about it a little bit differently, and I am going to let you just tell what you want to tell about your near-death experience right now, and then we'll start talking about other things. But if if you would set the scene for those who haven't heard your story, set it a little bit, and then just kind of run through your near-death experience, and we'll have more questions after that. Okay. Uh, I was uh, 21 years old, 1980, Banff National Park, Western Canada, uh, south of Jasper, and it was March... I was ice climbing. I made a miscalculation of my equipment. My partner, Tim, we had spent eight days snow caving. We were both experienced wilderness, high mountaineers. I hadn't climbed ice, but I technical climbed and rock climbed and, and climbed lots of different mountains all my life and been a winter camper. So it wasn't out of my reach to do this. Plus, I was in the National Ski Patrol. At high peaks were my space. And so we made this climb. My miscalculation and my equipment slowed us down. We ended up being stuck on the mountain at sunset with a tangled 300-foot knot of a rope uh, and hypothermia uh, set in very quickly and progressed through the night. Frostbite set in early and progressed through the night. And we decided that we were going to die or we were going to fight to not die. And so we chose to fight to not die, but we didn't really believe we were going to get off the mountain because of the circumstances. So a longer story short, uh, just before dawn, a couple hours or so, we were on our last rappel, and the rope got stuck on a crag in the dark around the corner, in the dark around the corner, and we were clipped into the mountain. Tim was to my left, I was to the right. Hypothermia progressed to feeling my body being hot and then I began to fall asleep and at one point trying to get the rope free at one point I fell asleep but I didn't lose consciousness and as I as I felt my body collapse I thought I'm not unconscious because every other time I fell asleep I was asleep and the striking the mountain is what woke me up but this time I didn't wake up and there was no mountain and I was aware of my whole horizon where the mountain should have been, opening where my face should have been pressed against the mountain, opening to a vast horizon that was filled all, all the way up to my peripheral vision and a, a rushing toward me of an intelligent fog, a being, darkness, onrushing watery form of solidity that intelligently communicated to my mind without language, I'm taking you. And I thought to myself, no, you're not. 
and I put up all my willpower to stop this now I call the angel of death and just plucked me out like a, a flower out of the ground and the next thing I knew I was in this greater darkness in this orb form in the presence of nothing but I could see in every direction and again no it's timeless and there's no there are no things so I'm not even a thing I'm 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 a non thing and and in front of me is a, a if I had a front which I didn't but beside me behind me next to me somehow there was this portal that was an opening a, a rent uh, that was translucent and transparent in its covering and it was fairly gi gigantic and it was had this flow that came down like a flow that came down or up or across over the surface and I could see through it and not see through it at the same time and it was this long arcing tunnel and I touched it with my being and when I touched it with my being is when I heard my name called inside myself and knew instantaneously I was in the presence of the divine who I couldn't see and saw and understood that I was a created being by the creator and the creator was eternal and I was in awe of the immensity of the size of this creator and my, my soul had this was like long tail elongation of being from the moment of my name calling which seemed to be in some sort of everlasting place and yet my name continued to be called for the whole time my soul <laughs> exists and there seemed to be these steps on my soul but but I was right at the top of this long eternal thing and I was thrust into a life review where I experienced all the pain that I'd ever given everyone in my entire life their, their, the pain that I meant to give them and the pain I didn't mean to give them intentional and not intentional and the and non-intentional pain which, which sometimes resulted from loving one person and by loving over here I ended up giving pain over here that non-intentional pain was a, a much faster than the pain that I had intended to inflict upon people and I, I suffered their pain times 10,000 and it was all at once and it was in sequence and my sister who was two years old another sister who was two years older than me featured prominently because she's the one I spent most of my life with and hurt the most you know he hurt the ones you love and um, and meanwhile as I suffered this pain I self-judged I judged myself shamed ashamed and shameful not for the things that I had done and the pain that I had caused but for the the pettiness of the size of them in comparison with the infinite the infinitude of the love of God it wasn't so much that I did these things as that God's love was so vast that 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 these yes. things were so like little bits of sand under mm -hmm. a saddle um, and and I also knew I also knew that that, that was the state of human being and that yes. it was through no fault of mine. And the voice kept saying to me, I love you. I made you. I've always loved you. I've always known you. I've known everything about you. There's nothing about you that's ever been unknown to me. And I love you anyway. You are my beloved. You are my beloved. I forgive you. And then I was infilled with this complexity of, this, of the oneness. The simplicity of the oneness and the complexity of all the components. Um, all in equal measure and not separate from each other. This infilling of, to overflowing of heaven within. And the voice was silent. And I said, without language, am I dead? And the voice said, yes. And I was distinctly knowing that it was not a male voice or a female voice because there was no sound. There was no sound and there, were, there was no language and there was, uh, there was a knowing. And knowing came without gender or sex or religion. Or it, it felt like it boomed inside of me, this knowledge. Did, did it feel somewhat like that to you? Oh, I was. I was. Yeah. I was afraid. I, I was so filled. No, not afraid, but I knew that I was filled to the edge of my capacity that more would explode me. <laughs> um, and there was so much more. Yeah. And, and, and that, that telepathy, that booming, it filled me when the voice spoke. I almost became the sound. But, of course, there were no frequencies and no amplitudes and none of that stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> keep going. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, um, uh, 
So I was infilled with this infinitude of all these combined things of love and beauty and truth and joy and knowledge. And, and I understood so much more about my life and humanity. And, and, and I, I said to God, am I dead? And God said, yes. And I said, but I haven't gone through the, this portal yet. And God said, well, mm, you don't have to or you can have a question, or what's on your mind, or <laughs> some sort of communication of query, um, and waiting, and I said, I can't really go now. Am I dead? God says, yes, can I, I, don't know, I, I can't go now, why not? Because my parents are suffering, We'd lost, I'd lost my sister, my mom had this breakdown that I talked about, and, and then I, I was swept in the instant of a thought and saw all of Earth. And I was like up on Jupiter or something, or <laughs> sort of like that, but there were no other planets. I couldn't see any other planets. I could only see Earth, but it was a distance shot. And yet I could yeah. see every single human being just as I see you. I saw every single person, and I could see on every single person uh, a veil. And I mean everybody, <laughs> billions of people all at once. And the, and the voice said to me, in the way that I love you now, you now know that I have always loved you. And all has been well and all will be well because of my love. And you know that that is true. And, and, and it's the love times septillion. Times, <laughs> uh, times septillion times ten septillion. It's just, and, and it was true, God said, for every single human being. I love them all in the way that I love you now. And, and they don't know that all will be well, but you do. And because you know that, you can stay. And I saw my parents' faces like I see yours and only their faces were filled with suffering and I decided I couldn't I couldn't make them lose another child and so I said I had another commitment I was in a theater company I'd made a commitment and I you know, stand by my commitments and um, and God really didn't answer and I said well again I didn't go through the portal do I have to stay and God said I want you to stay, but no, you don't have to stay. I said, can I come back here to this, this immense indwelling of the divine heaven, um, this state of unity and, and, and healing and wholeness? And God said, in peace, yes, you can come back here. And I said, I choose to live my life. And God said, you won't live your life. And the next thing I knew, I was being reduced, like I was being like a, like a balloon deflated and shoved <laughs> inside a little tiny tic-tac. Um, it doesn't quite fit right, and all the all the wisdom and knowledge that I had uh, that made me the expansive truth of myself, the wholeness of myself, was crushed back into this physical form, and 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 I was somewhat like you. I was didn't understand where I was or what was going on or how to think. I, I didn't know what the biology was or or this whole world. And somehow I wasn't just getting back into my body. It was being crushed inside this entire existence of universe. It was yeah. like... I, I understand that, you know, certainly I felt disconnected from the body and still connected to that vast intelligence out there. So though I was shoved in here, I was like, oh, I'm still partly out there and I don't understand why I'm here and there. And it was very confusing. But mm. I knew I had died, and I, I guess this is where I'm kind of lucky, and I'm glad I'm one of these near-death experiencers who has these verifiable details along the way, because you didn't have anyone other than your climbing partner to verify this for you. But I had, you know, my neurosurgeon, and I grabbed her arm. I was like, as soon as I could speak, I was like, I died. And she's like, yeah, yeah, we thought we lost you for a couple of minutes. And, <laughs> and <laughs> she we downplayed it and all that. But, you know, that, right. that was confirmation, and then I felt the prayers of family members who were praying for me as I was in surgery and that's something you didn't have because no one knew that you were dying at that moment but I could feel what prayer felt like and it was this beautiful wind trying to pull me back into my body I could feel all their wishes and thoughts and a prayer connected to love is a very beautiful thing so I, I guess beautiful. I always want people to know if they lose someone and that person is still going on and they prayed for them they still felt that prayer because I felt that prayer I knew you know who was praying for me when I came out 
I was never in doubt of what had happened to me. You know, mm -hmm. I just had this certainty and the certainty that I had changed. And so when people doubt near-death experiences as the brain shutting down, I just giggle. I laugh. I'm like, oh, no, 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 this is real. And I think the differences between like mine, sensing this prayer and people were praying and you being in this place and experiencing what you experienced. I mean, even that's verifiable because we had different experiences that correlate with what we we're mm -hmm. going through. Mm -hmm. But how do you explain to people and how did you explain to people that it was never a dream or a hallucination or anything that people often say that a near-death experience is? Like, I just was filled with certainty, but I'd love to hear your answer. Well, I, I kept mine a secret for decades. Um, so even though I went to div school and was practicing all sorts of contemplative techniques of prayer, I still didn't tell anybody because yeah. I didn't know whether they would judge me and I thought that they would and I and I thought well what good is that I'll just lose credibility and then I'm not gonna be able mm. to do my job but then certain circumstances changed I was the pastor of a church uh, which had a huge embezzlement and uh, that lasted a long time and I got the crap beaten out of me during this process for about a decade um, mm. and and in the end some guy said to me one Sunday morning as I climbed into the pulpit, you know, we're really sorry we treated you that way for all those years. How did you endure us? And I decided to tell him. So I was like, okay, I can't lie to these people anymore that I'm a believer. Um, and so I told him my story and I took a huge risk. And yeah. I, I decided finally that I had to be the person that I am. And as for people who say, oh, you know, either you're a kook or I don't believe you, it's a brain shutting down, I, they're going to find out when they die. And I, I, have, a, I have an obnoxious certainty. <laughs> yeah. um, and I try, to, I try to be humble about it. I try to, <laughs> like if, if people are like, oh, that was your, your brain shutting down, I'll be like, okay, fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to convince anybody because it's very subjective, but there are millions of us. Millions yes. and millions of us coming back with the same story of divine love. Even if where we went was a little different, even if our experiences aren't the same, we all come back with this, this indwelling of love that is visible to us in each other and is visible in other people who, like you said before, are somehow spiritual and turned on even if they don't even know it. And, yes. And, and, and so I, I'm all in now. Um, I've been all in for a couple, three years now in a pretty public way, and I have a very yeah. public job, um, and eh, I'm going to go home <laughs> in the end, and, and that's my most important priority. Yeah, so I have a certainty that was obnoxious as well, and I think my certainty came from seeing a little bit of my body in the surgery and the hospital and having some verifiable details. But then also seeing the supernatural, the angels who were there for me, and seeing more than this reality while seeing this reality. And so mm -hmm. it just seems as if, to mm -hmm. me, no, I wasn't making this up. I know the difference between a dream and a hallucination. And I know that I was seeing so much more than I could ever see while encased in this body. And, of course, just the change that we go through. I did not know myself as myself when I came back. And I... I wasn't a meditator, mm -hmm. but when I came back, I intuitively knew I had to do this to heal my body and to get out of my pain. And so meditation was my way of reconnecting with God and really feeling that love pour into me and begin to start healing my body. And I just was not the same person. And anyone for religious reasons or scientific reasons who countered me, I just always came back to the fact of I would not have chosen to be this conduit of love and to go into education. I just wouldn't have chosen Why that. would you do that? <laughs> right. I grew up poor. I wanted to be rich. You know, like, right. That was not what I wanted to do. And, and I just, I was so different. And I knew this within myself. And it's hard to communicate to others that certainty, but I feel it. And I think the certainty also comes, and many near-death experiencers feel this, of not fearing death. So when you had your second near-death experience, did you get to live through that? Did you feel no fear as you were? I felt no fear. Uh, I've yeah. been telling people ever since I came out. Plus, the, what, I, I kept it a secret, and so I didn't face uh, um, any recrimination. And by the time I came out, I already had a community of support in my little town on the coast of Maine, in my church where I had done 
a pretty serious ministry um, of not just like uh, dipping kids and burying old people, but like um, crazy stuff, like like dangerous, <laughs> crazy, real life. Mm. So I had a reputation of of being true and real, and mm. that's and that is the that's what I counted on. Um, always being authentic with my people, with the exception of lying about being a believer. Um, <laughs> always being so. When, when I came out, I was in a trusting place with people who loved me. So it wasn't a huge risk for me in my church and in my town. Um, yeah. And and that I wanted to to clarify that a little bit. And then the the other part of what you were talking about. Um, which was what? Now I've gone off track here for a sec. <laughs> oh, just the certainty and how we oh, communicate. The certainty. Yeah. Right, 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 right. The certainty. So, <laughs> so, so when I finally came out, uh, I didn't have to worry about people naysaying me. Yes. Uh, uh, only because they they're like, oh, so that's why he's weird. <laughs> that's that's more yeah. like what they said. Um, yeah. Oh, that explains it. It came a lot. Ah, oh, that's what it is. Ah. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. But then, but then when I run into scientists, a bunch of my friends are scientists and agnost- a whole lot of agnostics and atheists. Yes. Some of my, sorry about that, Mike. Um, <laughs> some of my de- some of my dearest friends are atheists, and yeah, um, we too. just accept each other. <laughs> well, why not? Because you know, yeah. technically, I am too because I'm really not a believer, but I'm not because I'm a knower. So I'm kind of this in between thing. Uh, they say they say they call BS on that, and they're like, yeah, now you're not. <laughs> but but. But I don't yeah. care if they're. I don't care if they are or they aren't. I love them as they are, just like everybody else. And that, yes. and, and that going swinging back around to talking. You talking about experiencing people um, as as portals of love around you. That's for everybody: atheists, yes. Jews, Christians, Muslims, Sikhs, Jans, agnostics. Doesn't matter. Yeah, so I have a lot of friends who are scientists and agnostic as well, and the one piece that they kind of break down and fall apart, and they're like, okay, whatever, maybe you're right, <laughs> and they just, you know, like, throw it aside, is that piece, you know, the verifiable details that I and other people have had when, you know, I say, no, this this has been verified right. to have happened while I was outside of form, can't be a dream, you know, that it gives credibility to near-death experiences, and, and they really don't have an answer for it. They just kind of shrug it off, because I think they kind of prefer <laughs> not uh, opening to that idea, and that's fine. You know, like, I'm, I'm happy for them if, if that's but, where they want to stay. But maybe science itself will come up with, yes. uh, as they study consciousness, they'll come up with a scientific understanding of the location of consciousness, which is there's a lot of studies going on now in yes. Alberta, Canada, and, and uh, Long Island at the University there of Stony Brook, um, and other places as well. UVA, I guess they're doing stuff down there too of some kind. Cool. Um, but maybe science will say, finally say, oh, consciousness is some sort of download of software into a hardware, and there seems to be some kind of interface. Yes. Well, they're, <laughs> I agree. Clo- they're closing in on that. Um, they are. So. so, this is a slightly different question. You knew that you were created, and I have a friend recently who got this reading, and she called me and was very upset that this uh, person told her that she had lived 400 different lives. And I, I giggle because I'm like, who cares? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know that. <laughs> and, right. and did you, and a lot of near death experiencers or people who are interested in near death experiences ask about reincarnation. And I wasn't given any direct information about it. It kind of made sense on some level that, you know, since my consciousness survived my body that I would be able to enter another body at some point but I didn't that wasn't like the message of my near-death experience do you have any thoughts on that or did you receive information on that I I do have thoughts on that I have two (laughs) two thoughts on that one one um, for me I decided a long time ago I don't know whether I'm gonna reincarnate or not reincarnate I don't it's not my goal to know that my goal is to is to pursue the one only that kind of that kind of projective thinking is um, inefficient and non-productive for me. I, if I, I've learned by studying all these ancient books, all you know, my library is full of them, um, that the, the goal is to return to the one and not to worry about the details. Keep, yes. keep, keep the heart open on the one and, and let the future, if there is a future, 
for you in, in, in a reincarnation take care of itself. Now is the time that only now exists. If you're after the now, do it in the now. Don't worry about what comes next. That's one thing. And the other thing is, is, that, is that when I had this elongation of my soul and I could see this, I could almost see, but I couldn't quite see the, 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 the moment of my creation uh, of my soul, but there seemed to be like striations or, or um, levels or bifurcations in the length of my soul that somehow blended with it that seemed to um, segment me even though I was a singular soul. So mm. what were those things? I don't really know. But if, if, if all time exists in the divine at once and there is no future and there is no past uh, and, and God is all things, it's, it's possible to be living simultaneous lives. It's possible that, that, that um, the soul keeps putting on forms and repeating that process. But I'm not really, I'm not worried about that. I don't want to know that I lived 400 lives. <laughs> I, I don't want to know that I lived a thousand lives or two lives. I only want to return to the one because if I spend all my time worrying about what I was and trying to, trying to find that out and doing past life regression, I'm, I'm losing the opportunity to focus on the most important thing. And that's the little death now in order to prepare myself for the big death when I go home. And that's the opening of, of, the, of the doorway inside myself repeatedly. Um, so, let if any people want to worry about it, that's fine. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. And I, I guess I can blend over and say if if it helps someone, I think it's fine. You know, the past life regressions sure. and thinking about that. Sure. I I have a lot of um, memories. I think of my past life, and I know that I didn't fulfill what I wanted to fulfill in that past life, and that this life is about going a little farther and. And going farther than I did in that past life. But I don't think about it a lot. It's just a marker. And it's just something that I'm like, okay, that's where maybe society and that time period allowed a woman to go. And now this life is about going farther and accomplishing more and doing more. And so it does help me now to think about that. So it might help someone else, I think, you know, to let go of that. But I largely agree that all of that is ridiculous. You have to think about 400 different lives. And for someone to say that to someone, it's very confusing. And that's not what spirituality is about. I mean, like at the essence, it is about pursuing God, being closer to that love, as you said. And, and all of that seems like a distraction. <laughs> Especially because the soul is made of love, and if it's the if you really are the one soul, then then why worry about the permutations of that soul? Why not concentrate on on the on the oneness with the one, and and right. let all the biological forms? My biological form here, when I was dead, really wasn't important to me, I, and it was only important insofar as I had to. I went through this purgation of fire, this fire of love. But after that was over. I didn't like. I didn't want to come back and use this thing again. Why would I do that? I was this wholeness of being um, yeah. that seemed to be everlasting. That's my real self. All these lives I live here, they're like temporary things. And and people people tell me and this is kind of hard for me to say. Okay, um, uh, there are people who have told me from the Self Realization Fellowship, uh, one person in particular who um, she's believes in reincarnation very heavily and that I'm that she's it's very clear to her that I've had many lives before and here are the reasons she's laid out reasons why Vedic reasons why and and historical yogi reasons from other from other gurus why now um, that's okay I mean if, if, if that's true that's okay I don't I'm not against it but it's not or I'm not for it I'm only for the one I'm not going to worry about all those other things that, that, that get in my way for the pursuit of the thing that matters the most. Um, and, and if you lived 400 lives before and you want to know about those 400 lives, why, why wouldn't you want to know about the core of the being of yourself instead and, and know the truth of yourself, not, not the temporary, I was a, I was a slave in Egypt. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and you know, and, and help build the pyramids, which is cool. You know that you could do that, but that's not who you are. That wasn't who you are then, right? And it's not who you are now. And that's right. really what it comes down to for me: is that this is not who I am. Yes. So we'll end with this thought, which is a lot of people 
encourage near-death experiencers to work with the dying and to sit with people who are dying and I've done that a few times I want to start doing that more often if you could talk about the work that you do in that area and in other areas I'd really like to hear about that uh, I, in ministry before I went into television I was a midwife for the dying and that was just part of what I did as a regular church pastor uh, I, I would sit with those for weeks and months sometimes people who were terminally ill so sitting with the dying just isn't you know showing up the moment they leave sometimes it's it's months and months of visitation and talking about real things and and listening with an open heart and and helping them heal the emotional wounds of their life that they may be carrying and not projecting out to them whatever emotional wounds or psychological twists that I have but just to be a vessel of reflection and um, acceptance and love and challenge where it needs to be challenged but not but not challenged to um, force them against their their own pain but to hold their hand in the challenge and help them walk through their pain if they want to go with you um, and so there's a lot of that that happens in sort of hospice situations and then toward the end of life when people are in the process within weeks or days or hours of dying that's more intense and being able to be a vessel of the light and the love which you already are and all of us are but endy ears and and people of great faith already have an inkling of that but in particular you can be a vessel of light to them and so oftentimes at the end of life um, I begin with young people and old people, mm. uh, frightened people and faithful people, um, and hold their hands and just exude love, not saying a single word, just holding their hands and being with them and loving them where they are. And, and perhaps in the end, when it's time, telling them it's okay to go, trust the light, release now, You've done everything that you can in this life. You've taken care of what you can. Now it's time to go. And then, and then there are those tragic scenes that I've come upon where people have died um, in my arms um, uh, and, and, and um, circumstances that I wasn't expecting and neither were they. And, and then it's the same thing. It's the yeah. loving, holding them um, and, and telling them with the confidence that only a person who knows can. You are beloved. You're going home. Turn to the light. Trust God. Let yourself go and reach for the, reach for the divine and all will be well. And it's, that also is a pretty simple thing. It's emotionally taxing, or it can be emotionally taxing. It's burdensome because we're still human beings. We end the ears and we suffer uh, the, with grief and mourning and um, but holding the hand and helping a person dies it's an honor and and you get sometimes to see the soul leave and sometimes yes. the, the people in the room see that happen or, yes. or as the person dies they begin to the veil begins to lift the veil that covers them and they begin to see uh, angels or or their aunt or their mother or their dad or grandma or somebody coming to stand by them and to welcome them back and in the old days, the, uh, the hospital staff, the doctors and the nurses would say, oh, it's okay, dear. You know, you're just seeing things. But they don't say that anymore because, because they recognize that the soul is its own thing and that this world is not the, the end stop. It's, it's a yes. beautiful thing. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And, and every ear who could um, has the natural capacity to help at that point. Yes, so I too have come across people who are dying in South Korea. There was a child who was hit by a taxi, and he oh. couldn't have been more than five or six. And I held him as he died, and I felt his soul just go away from his body. And I, I just, oh. the light was already there, but I just told him to go there and that he'd be fine and everything was okay. But I knew it was over, you know, just by holding him and. Uh, what hurt the most was imagining his parents. So that, those were the people that I prayed for. You know, those were the, I yes. went to the temple every day and thought about them and prayed for them because I knew that they were hurting so much. And it was this 
poignant scene for me because it was only a few years after my near-death experience and I just realized how quickly these things can happen. So there's the spiritual element of near-death experiences, but then there is the physical and how quickly it happens. I I know that some people who've seen some people die and they're afraid, then they become afraid of death. A friend of mine saw his uncle die and the uncle was like just filled with fear in his last moments and this caused uh, him yeah. to fear death. And Sure. My father, when he died, was totally at peace with it. I mean, it was this jovial big joke. He knew where he was going, and I knew where he was going, and, you know, there was just laughter in the air. So it was a really easy transition. It was a beautiful, you know, transition out of this life. But those who have seen those kind of deaths, um, I think it's more painful for them. And, and I hear what you say about that could be more taxing. Is that part of what you're saying is more taxing? It, it is, and it is a, an advantage for an NDE to be able to help a fearful person begin to trust the light and love that lives beyond us and yes. because you already know and so I I've been in circumstances with, with people who are incredibly fearful and and tried to emote and emit the the radiant love of the divine through a hand or a hug or just standing there and using language and words of calmness and and truth to help the alleviate some of the fear and and, and one time it totally worked. It hmm. totally, totally fear went away and he relaxed and released in my arms. And I, I understand why people who see others die painfully um, are fearful or who die fearfully uh, are infected by that fear. I, I understand that. And if we can as ND ears, as a collective, be able to alleviate some of that around us, then as a group we get to help the nation or the world of humanity to fear not or to fear less. Yeah, and that soothing I think is very important that we give to others that you're talking about because even if they have faith, the dying process can be a little bit painful. We start to disconnect from it, but I don't mm -hmm. look forward to however I'm going to die. I mean, like, it, it doesn't excite me. I mean, how could it? It's not a wonderful process, but biology is also a little bit kind. I think we do start mm -hmm. disconnecting long before, you know, we, we die, and so it, I don't think that we feel everything from having a traumatic accident. I certainly didn't feel everything. No. I felt some great amount of pain, but right. I didn't feel everything. And so that's what I try to remind people. But yeah, that giving that love and that comfort is, is a beautiful thing to be able to do. But and swinging back to the kids uh, and the kid in, that you saw that you held and his parents, it's, it's the people who remain who suffer the most. Yes, always, always. And then, Two, people want that connection so desperately, like, it's not really what I want to do with my life, but occasionally I do give readings, you know, medium readings to people who are in great need of that connection. And I only do it not out of curiosity, like if someone wants to contact Abraham Lincoln, no, you know, that's not going to happen. But, <laughs> but if, you know, they really want confirmation of a dear friend or loved one, Sometimes I'll do it because I feel that, you know, that's God working through me in some way to offer comfort to someone. But I think everyone can connect and believe more in that love going on. Do you have any thoughts on staying connected to people beyond? Uh, yes, I think that the, the people who have gone beyond often choose to stay connected to us. Yeah. Uh, there are lots of people, anecdotal stories that are told uh, with whispers in closed rooms uh, of visitations from the dead who bring the truth of, of love and peace. I'm okay, Ma. I'm sorry that I hurt you. Um, those sorts of things. And sometimes they're in dreams, actual vivid yes. sleeping dreams. And sometimes they're in waking visions where you see uh, your love at the kitchen counter or uh, or you see signs, people see lots of signs. I, 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 I think that's really helpful that people put their, their hope and love in that. But more powerful events are when uh, someone comes to visit in person, you could say. <laughs> yes. um, and, 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 and as for reaching out to them, uh, sure. Uh, but again, if you're in pursuit of the divine, why 
pursue a lesser when you can pursue the whole. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and and so so my sister who vanished eventually died of a, a coronary event uh, maybe six years ago or so and she's been returning to my parents and making amends um, and, and, and neither of my parents pursued that hmm. um, but she comes back to help them uh, she's never visited me um, which is okay I don't need her to um, miss her still but my eyes isn't turned on her. I, I, I don't wish for her to appear at my bed, at the foot of my bed, you know? I, yeah. I, I only want the oneness. And, and then all things are added with that. Yeah. You miss nothing. Go ahead. I, I think sometimes, too, they, like you said, they stay connected to us. And I know that my grandfather and father stayed connected to me in times of need. So whenever I was in a dangerous situation one time, my grandfather like gave me directions where to go, oh, what yeah. to do. And, you know, and I didn't even question it. I didn't think of it as after-death communication. I just, you know, it was just something right. I do. And so I listened to him and went there and then everything turned out just fine because I had that guidance and I thought... You know, maybe when people don't get that message from that loved one, to just wait. Life is long. <laughs> it might be 20 years from now, five right. years from now, and you might get that communication or that confirmation. But I know that's one of the reasons why people listen to near-death experiences is they really are hurting after the death of someone. So I'm, I'm glad we ended with that. And thank you for talking with me, and I really appreciate it. Um, always a pleasure, and I'm so glad to be able to participate in your program and be able to reach out to those who are in pursuit of God. Thank you. And if you enjoyed this video, please subscribe to my Facebook page and my YouTube channel. And I hope to have a lot more talks just like this one and more. So thank you very much. May